Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about 13 principles to grow your business like Amazon and about Jeff Bezos, uh, the world's richest person. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adima Zorkal, your product innovation and bio-creation expert, and I'll be your host. And today I have a very special guest, Steve Anderson. Hi, Steve. Hey, hi. How are you? Great to be I'm here. Good. Good. I'm so happy to see you. Steve is the co-founder and CEO of Catalyst and an international best-selling author of The Bezos Letters. So I'm going to tell you about this book that he wrote. The, the Bezos Letters unlock the key lessons, mindset, principles, and steps Bezos continues to use to make Amazon the massive success that it is today. Applying these principles helps drive higher, faster results. So it's going to be interesting today. We're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're so invited to join the discussion and ask questions. And now we can start. So before, we had a small discussion, and you told me, what are these letters? So he's writing these letters for, what, what is the reason that Bezos is writing these letters for all, all of these years? So um, in the US, um, annually, public companies have to file financial reports with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Traditionally, it, partly to help explain some of that dense financial information, CEOs write a letter to those people who actually own stock in the company called shareholder letters. Now, most of those shareholder letters are, are boring and all they do is tout the benefits of the company. Where Bezos was different is he did some of that and he talked a lot about his mindset and what te tools, techniques, processes, things that he used to actually grow Amazon, hence the title of the book. And I just became really intrigued when I read those letters really as a single narrative. And there seemed to be threads going through those letters that he talked about. And frankly, I thought they were really helpful and important thoughts yeah. and, and what ended up being principles, which is what I wrote about in the book. Yeah, and you, you read about more than 20 of them for this yes. book? Yes, yep. And, so the, and first, you... the first letter was 1997 when they went public. Wow. And his last letter as CEO before he stepped uh, down uh, was uh, 2020. So again, yeah. lot, a, a lot of letters, I mean, actually a book in of themselves. And yeah. uh, um, Did... I, I helped kind of make them more approachable, I hope. <laughs> it was yeah. the purpose behind the book. Yeah. Do you feel that he grew? Like when you were going from 1997, like as a person, as a businessman, that he could articulate it better? What did you think? Yeah, well, I would say a couple things. One is he's an excellent writer. I mean, the way he uses words, the way he puts phrases together, um, it, it became really apparent. One, I a lot of these letters aren't written by the CEO. I feel most of the letters Bezos wrote were his, meaning he wrote them. I'm sure he had other input and all of those, but just the style 
was consistent throughout the, the letters. I would say the only exception to that was 2019, where I felt like the style was a little different. And if you remember, the so the 2019 letter is published in the spring of 2020, right? So the pandemic yeah. was in full force, right? Amazon was yeah. going crazy, growing rapidly. Right. I, I felt like he had too many other things going on, but hmm. that was just, I don't know if that's true or not. I've never been able to confirm <laughs> that, but that that's was just question. my sense. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's, let's start with something that everybody knows about Jeff Bezos, that he's a master of risk. And we're talking about great entrepreneurs and what they, they are, they know how to do is, is handle risk. And why are you thinking that this is so important and how do you know you're taking too much or not enough risk in your business? Exactly. So, I mean, that thought really came out of my work in the insurance industry here in the U.S. Um, last 25 years was spent helping uh, insurance agents uh, really understand and use technology. And as we know, technology continues to develop rapidly. Um, and I started asking the question, is the biggest risk companies face actually not taking enough risk? Well, very counterintuitive for the insurance industry because we're all sure. about mitigating risk, right? right? And here I'm saying you need to take more business risk uh, in order to be able to continue to grow. And, and as I researched kind of that concept, certainly came across companies that many of them we know were once very successful and are no longer here. Um, and companies that continue to be successful. So what's the difference? Well, I came across Amazon and the shareholder letters and really did a deep dive. And, and I think one of the things is that Jeff Bezos understand, uh, understood the power of strategic risk-taking. And so I call him in the book, the master of risk, because he's yeah. not afraid of failure. Um, because he understands that in order to continue to grow, you need to experiment. And by its very nature, an experiment means you're going to fail. Maybe yeah. nine times out of 10 until you find that right thing. Um, and so throughout his letter, he talks again and again about the need to experiment in order to invent so that they can then innovate. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the innovation mindset is, uh, well, we need to innovate. Well, innovate is great. It does need to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's taking what you've already had as a success and incrementally trying to improve it versus inventing something brand new. And Amazon has been great at inventing entirely new businesses within their organization. I mean, AWS, Amazon Web Services, is certainly an example of that. And understanding the, the power and the benefit of then growing some of those, as he calls them, seedlings, you know, and protecting them as they, yeah. they grow. So risk is central. In fact, my first principle is encourage successful failure. And again, businesses mm -hmm. don't typically put those two words together. Yeah, of course. But if you don't as a business owner, manager, you know, CEO, whatever the position is, 
your employees are going to follow your lead. If you think risk is bad, then they're not going to experiment because failure then becomes a negative. Um, and, and I actually believe most employees are not actually afraid of failure, but they are afraid of the consequences of failure. Of course, of right? course. Right? Yeah, and of so, course. And so how do you get people's ideas that may be crazy, that actually might work to get them out yeah. if you don't encourage the fact that maybe every idea isn't going to work and, and that's okay. Now, I, always, I, I have to always interrupt here and say, yeah. Amazon has an intolerance for incompetence. So this is not just throw it against the wall, let's see what happens. This is intentional, strategic, focused, but still it's an experiment and you could fail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about the insurance industry, which is very traditional and, and tries not to have any risk or not to have many uh, unconditional, un, uh, unsupervised elements in what right. they're doing. Right. And it's a, a, in a sense, there are several industries in insurance and, and maybe banking, finance. There are some of the, in health are some of the industries who who are very reluctant to innovate. Mm -hmm. yep. So how, how do they, when they, you tell them about it, what is the reaction? <laughs> oh, oh, typically it's, you know, that crazy, you know, you're crazy kind of look sometimes. Um, yeah. And when I start talking about it, there is at least a level of understanding. And I think those examples, insurance, financial, there's a lot of regulatory right. control, right? So, how do you take risks within a constrained environment? And people have, I mean, look at all the um, new kinds of financial payment systems, right? All yeah. of those, they didn't typically come out of banks. They came out of startups. Right. Right. They came and, from the outside. Usually. From the outside. Now they may have purchased, you know, that startup. Afterwards. Incorporated. That's great strategy, right? And you can still improve, you can still invent if you can understand the parameters that you're operating in and, and maybe even push a little bit against what's considered, you know, the either the gray area or we can't do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I think that's I, I honestly from what I see, I think that's part of the message that you're trying to get out too. is right. Yeah. You, if you're going to continue to grow, you can't just res, um, rely on your past success. And, and yeah. in fact, I call it the hubris of success because businesses get into this idea of protecting what got them there yeah. instead of inventing the next great thing. Right. That's going to propel them forward. Yeah. And when you're thinking about the insurance company, the first company that comes to my mind is Lemonade. It's an Israeli uh -huh. startup. Yep. Um, and, and it's so obvious that thinking differently from the beginning about what is insurance and what the customers need, it's so hard to create that kind of thinking from within a huge right. like enterprise. Correct. And, and again, it goes back to that culture that's built of not taking risk right. so you squash some of those ideas because we can't do that or certainly as a company gets bigger their decision making pro process actually slows down 
And, and that's another one of the principles that I talk about, uh, which is high velocity decision making. You know, at Amazon, they move that decision as far down as they possibly can to people who are qualified and competent to make those decisions. Yeah, it's another thing that the hierarchy, bureaucracy, all the, the processes within these uh, older right. uh, organizations is so hard to handle. It's so hard to change. And, and then they're, they're kind of stuck, this huge, you know, um, like a vessel that right. they move in sea so, so, so slowly. Yep. And why do you think it's so crucial to become customer obsessed in your business <laughs> and not just customer focused as everybody's talking about? So in, in his original 97 letter, he really laid the foundation for how he saw Amazon growing, which again, think about it, 97, the internet, nobody really knew what it was yet, right? Right. And nobody knew you could actually buy things on the internet and get yeah. them on your front porch. Well, yeah. he saw the possibilities there. And so several areas he talked about, one of those was that we at Amazon will obsess over customers. And, and I think that choice of word obsess is really interesting because again, as you said, I mean, people, businesses know they have to take care of customers. That, that's sure. not a question. Yeah. But we talk about it in customer focus, customer service, customer journey, right? But when you obsess over customers, I think it's a different level. And that has been a theme. One of those threads throughout Amazon's history is total focus on the customer. So when you obsess over a customer, you understand their wants, needs, and desires so deeply, you can actually, his phrase, invent on behalf of the customer even before they know they want it or need it. I mean, the Kindle is an example, right? Yeah. Completely redefined what reading a book looked like. But books have been around for 500 years. But right. when you obsess over a customer and you dig deep into the reading experience, one of the things they discovered is that the book actually fades away. If you're into a good book, you don't think about the pages. You don't think about the book. And so they wanted to try and recreate that experience of the book fading away. And one of the key objectives of Kindle was any book in 60 seconds or less that you could buy any book. And that's the advantage of the internet, right? Amazon shelf space is unlimited, millions of titles. And their goal was 60 seconds or less to purchase and download that book and begin reading. Yeah, And that's the original Kindle. And again, they continue, invented it new. They weren't the first e-reader, by the way, but they were the mm -hmm. first one that didn't have a cable connected to a computer, right? Yeah. Customer yeah. obsession. We wanted to have it downloaded, um, Cellular is what they used at no cost. I mean, crazy ideas from the outside. How can you do that? And customers seem to like it. And there yeah. are multiple examples of that kind of thinking. 
Yeah, I just want to remind our listeners that Amazon started as a bookstore and then they elaborated to other kind of products and then they thought about this experience of reading and then Kindle came and then other things came from that. And I know from, I think that I read that at the beginning when he said we're going to open this platform for other people, not only our products, he got lots of rejections from his management layer. Absolutely. They thought he was crazy. I mean, yeah. think about it. Think about it. Again, counterintuitive. What he said was, for Amazon, if our customers can buy a product that we don't have in stock from a third-party seller, that's better for the customer. This is another example of customer obsession. If the price of a third-party seller is lower than what we can offer, that's better for the customer. And if it's better for the customer, it will eventually be better for Amazon and their shareholders. So that's that different kind of focus. He got huge pushback. What do you mean you're going to let our competitors on our page yeah. And sell against us. He said, yes, but it's better for the customer. Yeah. So, and I know that within the store itself, you find that it's always for the end customer side, other than the sellers. The seller, the second uh, priority, the first priority is for the, the buyers and not for the sellers in that sense. Correct. And, and some of the pushback from over the years from third party sellers, what's called marketplace, you know, today, you know, is that. Amazon expects every third-party seller to treat customers the way they treat them. And if they don't, they might get kicked off. There, there is such a focus that you treat our customers better maybe than anybody else. And, right. and that focus is there. And part of the brilliance is they charge the third-party seller, right? A percentage. So they have another revenue. So they are making money yeah. and helping their customers at the same time. Right, right. And it's really counter, counterintuitive because you, usually you're saying, I have this traffic, I'm going to use this traffic, I'm not going to like right. share these, these traffic with others, with our exactly. competitors. It doesn't make sense. And it's so a crazy, it's a crazy idea. And to this day, there are very few other companies that have created a similar kind of platform because it's still, it's so counterintuitive. And for Amazon, their last numbers that I saw, 68% of all products sold on amazon.com were from third-party sellers. So they've literally created millions of small businesses by allowing those people to sell on their platform. Yeah. Do you think that there is certain characteristics or traits that Bezos holds when you're reading that, does he, he sound, I guess that he's very intelligent and fluent. That makes sense. But what do you think are the traits or the characteristics that you hear when you're hearing him talk in these letters? Well, I, I, I think a couple of things. And I've, I did a, a quite a bit of research kind of on his background to try and understand better why. You know, why is he this way? Well, again, you said I, we can just kind of say he's very smart, very intelligent. And growing up, um, one of the things that he did was spent the summers at his grandfather's ranch in West Texas. 
and they were in the middle of nowhere. If you've ever been to West Texas, and I have, it's I never been there. Nothing, <laughs> nothing. I really? mean, it's, yeah. Oh, it's it's desolate, almost desert-like. Um, okay. And you had to fend for yourself. You couldn't just run to the store to get a part or something like that. So I think he learned from his grandfather how to be resourceful and resilient in those kinds of things. And so he spent summers there probably from for about 10 years, maybe a little longer uh, with his grandfather. Uh, And the other interesting thing to me is his grandfather was one of the original scientists at, again, here in the U.S. called uh, uh, now called DARPA, Defense Department Research and Development. Oh, really? Right. So yeah. intelligence was, is in these genetics. I, guess. I think it's. I think it is. And and think about being able, having those conversations with his grandfather about all this new stuff and what it might look like. And again, there that that group is known for pushing the boundaries. So I think he had early experience with experimenting, testing, failing, trying again, right? All of those kinds of things that he brought into. Uh, what he did at, at Amazon. So his grandparents had a ranch, you know, with horses and cows. This is what you mean? Yes. Yep. Oh, yep. I see. Okay. Yeah. That, that's interesting to see, like, the image of this young boy in this ranch. <laughs> yep. That makes sense. Yeah. So could you tell us about the three customer experience pillars in your yes. book? So early on, um, again, back to that customer obsession, Three pillars at Amazon are wide selection, the everything store, right? So they started with books, quickly went to music, quickly then started adding a bunch of other, you know, types of what they call stores or product types. So wide selection, low pricing, um, and not always. I would say you could give examples where pricing is maybe lower elsewhere, but in general, you expect to go to Amazon and get low prices and fast delivery. So those three things continue to push Amazon, uh, and I'll use a phrase again, to invent on behalf of the customer. So wide selection. Again, third-party sellers fit into that. Low pricing. The more people and customers they have at Amazon, the more leverage and negotiation power they have with manufacturers, right? Because they can promise bigger, right? You get better pricing. Right. And then fast delivery. For the first probably 10 or 15 years, Amazon made no money. They lost money. Why? Yeah. Most people don't understand that. How come they lost money? Could you tell us about that? They lost money because... He was building the infrastructure necessary to support the business in the future. So fulfillment centers, delivery networks cost a lot of money. And and today is really unparalleled um, worldwide almost, right? I mean, and I'm a a personal example, just uh, so so we're recording this on a Monday. So uh, Saturday, a couple of days ago, I ordered a new Amazon uh, Fire TV. Long mm-hmm. not, reasons why not relevant, but I ordered a yeah. new one, and it said um, my options for delivery were next day or by 6 p.m. tonight. Wow! Night. And on the same day, 6 p.m. On the same day, 
within, wow. I would say, probably five or six hours. It showed up. <laughs> wow. Within that time yeah. frame. Well, I mean, think about fast delivery. And yeah. what Bezos says in one of his letters is, I can't imagine a day that customers want less selection, higher prices, and slower delivery. So their focus continues to be improving. And that's why you see delivery drones, right? Kind of yeah. crazy, maybe. Is it ever going to yeah. happen? I don't know for sure. But they're yeah. willing to experiment long term to develop new things that that are crazy in the beginning and become expected once people experience the benefits yeah. of it. I'm just imagining building something and having this vision that 10 years, it's still not pr providing you more and more money, right? So you right. need to invest. So how do you make these investors believe in your dream and believe in your vision and still provide you money and, and funds you in money. to do yeah. that? Well, I, it, it, some people have called Jeff Bezos is the world's greatest salesman. It seems because like of that. that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. of that. And again, one of my principles that describes that is long-term thinking, meaning he thinks in generations. So he, he said, again, in 97, the another section, so we talked about um, uh, customer obsession, another section is long-term thinking that we will make investment and, and decisions based on market growth and capturing the market as early as we can, not on short-term earnings, which yeah. here, and I think most places in the world, it's quarterly earnings report, right? And stocks go up or down of based course. on... Expectations yeah, I, I, I can tell you, like, Israel is the startup nation. Like, it's yes. got startups and exits. So you need to build something in two or three years. You need to sell it and you, you have revenues. It. And yeah. That's it. But, but so he said, um, we are building something great here, something we can tell our grandchildren about. So literally, he's thinking long-term, multi-generational. And wow. again, that's a different mindset. And I, I do know... Um, Audio that I actually have worked with several insurance technology firms coming out of, of Israel. You yeah. are a startup nation. It's actually really yeah. fascinating. But uh, to, that, to that's look what at. I'm saying. So yeah. we have so so many entrepreneurs and so many people with vision and so many people who have the ability to create a vision. I don't know any entrepreneur, and I'm working more than 20 years with, with most of them. I didn't hear about anyone talking 10 years from now. It's like three years is like max. And if, if you want to do a bit bigger, it's like five years, like 10 years. Oh, I, something um, you need to have. I just lost your audio. I'm checking on. Now it's better. And. Now, I think that you're on mute. Do you hear me, Beth? I think you're you're muted. Yeah. Now, now you hear me? <laughs> yeah, now it's better. Oh, don't you love live shows, right? Yeah, but it's part of what we're doing, right? All right, I'm changing.
Yeah. Happening. Let me go. I'm going to my settings in StreamYard. Yeah. I think that's the, so, right now it's a different mic, if I'm not mistaken. Mic? Yeah. No. The, the mic that yeah. you're using is a oh, different my one. My settings got changed. <laughs> yep. Okay. Bear with me. I'm almost there. I trust you on that one. Uh, there you are. Sorry about Yay. that. Yay. No, it's my, okay. That was my end. Don't you love it? No, it's fine. It's fine. So I wanted to tell you that I can just imagine how charismatic and influential you need to be in order to get funds for 10 years in the fast-changing technology industry. It's so uncommon that people yes. trust you not to, to give back the funds right. Right. for 10 years. And, and, and again, I think for him, kind of, I, I don't think he ever had in his mind an exit strategy. You know, a lot of startups today, they, they build to sell. Sure. He, he, he's has built and I think continues to build to uh, provide a service, you know, again, to their customers. And, and even if you look at Blue Origin, his space company, you know, same kind of mindset there. He's building that for the long term and, again, is willing to invest uh, personal money to make that vision come true. Yeah, and, and another thing which is very obvious that when he does get money, he's investing it back into the business and not taking it. Yes. So, and he, I think that at the beginning, if I'm not mistaken, at the beginning of the pandemic, he told all the stakeholders and to the board, he talked to the board and he said, we're going to invest all our funds. We're going to invest what, all, all what we have into this. So you're yes. not going to get funds back. We're going to invest it back to the business. Well, and, and um, Amazon has never paid a dividend. You know, their stock price has gone up significantly. Yeah. And again, you're seeing some of that readjustment now after the pandemic, but that's just part of business and part of, you know, keeping going and growing and all of those kinds of things. So sure. um, that's, again, interesting to me. Yeah. And it's, again, the, the long-term vision. Correct. So it's not like, yeah, I've done money. I'm taking, I'm buying 10 Lamborghinis and going home, something right. like that. Right. It's very, yeah. like, he could do that, of course, but he decided, and or maybe he does have a Lamborghinis. I don't know. Oh, he might. You know, he's got a number <laughs> of homes. I mean, so he could. Um, and, and I think people forget, too, the dot-com bust back in 2000. Yeah, 2008, I think. Well, that was the financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, 2008. I'm talking even earlier back when all the Internet stocks, you know, went down. So their oh. Amazon stock in 2000 went from $128 to $6. So wow. they've been through this before. Wow. And again, the mindset is that um, they are in it for the long term. And because the stock went down and it's down now for Amazon, doesn't mean we're that much stupider. It just means there's a readjustment going on and we, and, and we want to be, weighted as a company on our long-term prospects. And yeah. I think that's, again, a replay going on, I think now, based yeah. on that earlier. Yeah, but, and more than that, because he knew that he's overcome these kinds of like going down, he knows that he knows how to go back because correct. you have so much history yes. and experience. 
Yeah. I want to tell you about something that we got from Raman Ravula from LinkedIn. And he says, let's assume a young startup company has produced a novel IT system through personal funding. Now the company can pursue entering the market with competitive advantage. It really makes sense what we're talking yes. about that, yep. that you have. So thanks, Roman, for your uh, point of view. And, and, and of course, it makes sense that people like see the way that he has been thinking and how extraordinary it is compared to other companies and maybe few of the American big five companies could be somewhat similar yes but that's it there are not many Jeff Bezos uh, yeah well and, and you know I think even for a startup to, to I mean what I hear often kind of as pushback is well I'm not an Amazon right right yeah. or I'm I don't have Jeff the Bezos. resources or right. I you know and, and two things one is People forget Bezos started just like every other startup on his hands and knees, putting books they had gotten from a warehouse into a package and taking it to the post office to, to have it mailed to a client who went online to buy a book. And I think, too, is that's why I think the principles here are important, regardless of where you are on the scale. These principles, I think, can help. That's my hope, I would say. Yeah. And, and the 14 principles, no question, are a lot, but I've broken them down into what I call four cycles, test, build, accelerate, and scale. And, and I believe every business is going through those different cycles all the time. They're testing a new product idea, like the you know, comment made, okay, we've got something new. We think there's an advantage in the marketplace. So they've tested now, how do they build? Well, obsess over customers, long-term thinking are two important components to that. And then how do you accelerate? Well, we talked a little bit about high-velocity decision-making, right? Not slowing down the process yeah. because of adding bureaucracy as you, as you go forward. You know, and one other principle in that accelerate is uh, make complexity simple. And uh, Amazon does that really, really well. Um, and I think businesses can learn, you know, where are the friction points that your customers are experiencing right now that you may not even know exist? And how do you find them and correct them and make it easier? Yeah, yeah I think that even if like some of these 14 would make you think different, understand different the way that you manage your people, you manage your business, it's so important just to understand what is the essence of his success, the way that he sees the business and why is it so different? And just to try to grasp what are the points that he handled, because it looks for everyone, yeah, now he's a billionaire, so he's the richest person alive, of course. But he went through these like 20, 30 years, right? 30, yeah, like, well, yeah, yeah. A, a, a while, right? It's kind yeah. of like the example of the... Uh, um, you know, 20 year overnight success um, idea of there's all that work that went on and, and a, a lot of pain, as you, we already talked about in getting investors to continue to invest. I mean, there's lots of things that went into to, to, to that growth and, and that continued growth. Yeah, and, and I think that most people, when we're in general, when they're thinking about entrepreneurship and technology and people making money out of technology, they always think about these end goals, that they are so rich and powerful and they have this great user enterprise, but they don't know exactly what 
did they go through? What are the challenges? What are the things that they need to, what are the, the, the payments they need to pay in order right. to get there? And right? the work they need to do, right, to get yeah. there, right? It's it's a lot of work. It's Yeah, it is. I think that most people think that once you get it, it's like, yeah, now you have the recipe. Right. Now it's fine. And when you're thinking about experimentation, you know that you don't know. That's right. why it, that's why it's an experiment and not like a known fact that you succeed. Well, and that, that's kind of the phrase I think I used earlier is that hubris of success, right? Just because we were successful here, we think we'll always be successful. And that starts a slow slide down um, to maybe irrelevance and, uh, and, and the business going away. So yeah. keeping that fresh mindset of, in fact, I, uh, Amazon's been called um, the world's biggest startup because of how they think internally and their employees are trained to think, always thinking about what's next and what else can we build and how can we help our customers more. Yeah, I think it's related to what what is called the always day one. Yes, he, he's talking about. So tell it us is. about that. Uh, so I, you know, I have a couple favorite, you know, I guess principles. Um, but I, I think believe it's always day one is such a key concept and mindset at Amazon. So in that first ninety seven letter, he said it's day one for the internet and for Amazon.com if we execute well. Well, fast forward uh, a number of years, uh, and he was at uh, an all-hands meeting in, in Seattle, Washington, in front of a couple thousand Amazon employees, had given a, a, a traditional or standard quarterly all-hands meeting, was at the Q&A part, so employees could submit questions they wanted to ask him. And he, he looked down and he, he said the next question. He kind of smiled a little bit and he said, I think I know the answer to this one. He said, Jeff, what does day two look like? And he answered, day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating painful decline, followed by death. Yeah. And so that's it's always day one. That's why it's why always, it's always day, one. day one. Yes. Yeah. I know. And, and, but what's so that's really interesting to me. And I think if you look at some of those companies that were once very successful, you could start seeing that progression. Right. But I think what's also interesting, he wrote about that question in the 2016 letter and he went on to say, but I'm more interested in how you fend off day two. What are the protections? And he listed four customer obsession. We talked about a skeptical view of proxies. Now, proxies are processes and procedures that no longer fit. So are the are the procedures running you or do you run the procedures? Meaning, are you updating, changing to help them fit better? Three is eager adoption of external trends. So again, thinking about Amazon and AWS and looking, I mean, like drones and, and sidewalk delivery robots and their fulfillment centers, they're, they're eagerly adopting new technology that's out there and experimenting and testing. And then the fourth final was high velocity decision making. Again, to keep that speed of growth at the for, forefront of, of what happens. And, yeah. and I think those four things are really good things to think about as a business. Are we 
doing that to fend off that hubris of success and that slow decline into a day two company. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, could you tell us about a failure in Amazon, one of or two, or two of their products that didn't go well? Yes. So um, Amazon fails a lot. I mean, look yeah. at the news, right? I mean, recently this year, they closed most of all their retail stores. That was a experiment. How could we do retail better and different? Uh, and they closed them. Yeah. Back in 2014, they released the Fire phone. So a mobile phone. Really? I didn't know that. Uh, okay. Most people don't because it was an <laughs> okay. utter failure. So 2014, the phone, we already had iPhones, right? 2007, we already had Android phones. People are already chosen pretty much what the platform they wanted to use. We didn't need another phone. But it was Jeff Bezos' pet project. He thought this phone would be great. At the end of 2014, they wrote off $178 million in inventory and development costs. And at one point, the Fire Phone was for sale on Amazon for $0.99, cents, and they couldn't wow. give it away. Right? Wow. Utter failure. And, yeah. and, and there are many examples of that. You see Amazon closing things all the time because they try it. It doesn't meet their criteria for success, so they close it. Here's the success. Four months after the Fire Phone was released, Bezos got his first demonstration of a, a cylinder that could sit on a table, kind of like a Pringles can, that you could talk to, and it would answer you. So yeah. Echo is the hardware, right, the device, mm -hmm. Alexa is the machine learning software that processes your voice, looks up the information, and speaks it back to you. And I think uh, last number I remember seeing, they've sold over 100,000 Echo devices with Alexa on it. I think we could say that's been a success. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So we're almost done. I want to ask you the last question of what is your number one tip for leaders today? Uh, experiment. And don't be afraid of failure. Um, I, I feel yeah. like, and, and again, even now as globally, I, whether we're going into a recession or not, I don't know. I'm not that smart, I don't think. <laughs> and we're seeing a lot of trouble. Even in the midst of that, don't be afraid to experiment. Now, you may have to scale down your experiment. I mean, The realities of what's going on and wherever you are, are absolutely true. And some of the biggest businesses were born in that last, you know, you said 2008, 2009 financial crisis, yeah. because right. there's opportunities there. And right. don't kind of huddle down and, and you know, I, I don't know what's the right vision for it of, yeah. you know, getting under the covers and trying to protect yourself, but being willing to look at what opportunities might be out there, test them, see if they're actual opportunities or not, be willing to kill it if it's not, and be willing to invest in it if it is. Yeah. By the way, I have one of my talks. I give lots of talks and, and, and speaking in events. And next week, it's going to be my first face-to-face -face event for the last three years, which is oh, so wow. exciting. But I have a, a talk about that exactly. And, and I wrote a book, Innovating Through Chaos. And it yes. talks about... 
an opportunity that you have within this down down the, the hill uh, point of view that everything is going down and all the opportunities are going up. Right. And there are so many great startups and products starting in times of crisis. So it's really Agreed. interesting to know that. And actually, that's historically true, right? 2000, 2008. I mean, I, we see that played out over and over again. So Yeah, for sure. And where could people hear more about you and your work and buy the book, of course? Uh, so book is available on Amazon, as you <laughs> yeah, might expect. Surprisingly, book, right? right? <laughs> uh, the website for the book is thebezosletters.com. And there's some more information there that you might be interested in. Um, and yeah. LinkedIn is my primary platform. So I'm pretty visible there. I'm a top voice on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, so, you have like 340,000 followers, right? Yes, Something like that. Wow. Quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. Wow. So uh, if you've listened to this, reach out to me, connect with me. Let me know that you've uh, you've heard this and uh, I'd, I'd be glad to connect and, and interact. That'd be great. So thank you, Steve, for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I really enjoyed our talk and learned a lot. I didn't know about so many things that you told me about. Oh, that's so, great. Thanks. So thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And to all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining me. And if you want to learn more about what I do, go to invincibleinnovation.com. And I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.